How does Jesus' admonition to judge not apply to church discipline? When should we apply church discipline? And how? And why? And what do you do when you have a personal conflict with another Christian? You'll find all that out today on the Cross References Podcast. Welcome to the Cross References Podcast, where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story, and most importantly, how they all connect to the cross and Christ. Whether you're a newbie Christian or a veteran Bible reader, our goal is that God's Word will make more sense to you after every episode. Now listen, this is a part two. I was going to try to shove all of today's content into last week's episode, but I decided it would be too much. It was it was just too much for one day. However, I want to be clear Last week's episode was absolutely part one for the content I'd like to cover today. So if if you try to listen to today's program without listening to episode six, you're going to be missing out on a lot of context about judging. And that's basically what kicked all this off. Jesus plainly said, judge not in Matthew 7. But my thesis on Matthew 7 is that it doesn't actually tell us not to judge, but how to judge. Because if you think you can go through life without judging others, period, I think that would not only be unbiblical, but literally impossible. And I don't believe Jesus was telling us to do something that's humanly impossible. I think if you read all his comments on judging to get the full context, you'd see that Jesus wants us to judge, but to do so in a fair, reflective way, not a harsh and condemning way. If I had to boil Jesus' whole philosophy on judging down into one sentence, I couldn't. And that's why I'm spending two whole episodes on this topic. I might even have to address it again down the line with a third, but for now, I'm sure I can cover it in just two and finish it up here today. Um, I guess I got a little bit preachy last time about parenting, and it wasn't exactly my intention to, but I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to find different avenues by which to apply all these principles that we started talking about back in episode six. So um, what I'm going to do now for episode seven I want to switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about church discipline. I am so thankful for 1 Corinthians 5. If it wasn't for this chapter, I would have so many questions about Christian fellowship and where to draw the line. Um, I think a healthy church is one that is willing to discipline or call out bad behavior. Not necessarily publicly, but at least address issues privately. Um, You know, it depends on how public the sin is, I guess. A healthy church is not one where nobody ever gets disciplined. That is most assuredly an unhealthy church. A healthy church is one where discipline is carried out in a biblical manner. And one of the most powerful motivators for Christian people to live in a sanctified way is the knowledge that they could have consequences when they don't. Now, I've never heard of someone leaving a church because church discipline was carried out properly and biblically. You know, other than, of course, the person being disciplined sometimes. But but I, w- I just want to say that as a contrast to this fact. Over my life, I've seen multiple families leave churches because discipline was carried out unevenly or because sin was heard about all over the grapevine while church leaders tried to push it under the rug. Because publicly known sins were not acknowledged for months or years. Because perhaps church discipline was carried out, but it was not communicated to the body in a clear way and it left more questions than answers. And not only that, when one person sins, and it's well known, and they just get away with it, you start to see other church members copy that same behavior because they think there's no consequence. And when a pastor is afraid of hurting one person's feelings, so they neglect to carry out church discipline, it ends up having detrimental effects on the church body as a whole. Church discipline is an important matter when it comes to the health of your church internally, and the reputation of your church externally. And I've never heard of a church doing church discipline and then thought less of that church. I always respect them more for it. It's a recurring theme in Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation. He keeps telling the churches that they are tolerating behavior and people that they should be disciplining or kicking out. I mean, wow. Like I said at the start of, of yesterday or last week's program, Um, If you judge certain actions today, 
you might get called intolerant, like that's a bad thing. To merely label someone as intolerant is seen as the end of the argument by so many people today because it's just supposedly that bad to judge others' actions. But Jesus never blamed a church for being intolerant. He blamed them for being too tolerant. Go read Revelation 2 and 3 to, to see what I'm talking about. Healthy churches carry out church discipline. Healthy churches follow 1 Corinthians 5. Let's read it. So we're going to go through 1 Corinthians 5 now, most of the verses in the chapter. It's not a very long chapter. Um, and I'm going to be using the NIV this time. I mention that only because I typically will use the ESV for these Bible studies. I'm going to do the NIV today. I just, I kind of prefer how it phrases some of the things. So um, starting here at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 5, it says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole history of the Corinthian church. Um, hopefully, you're a little, at least a little bit familiar with that. Hopefully, you know this is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And basically, he's pointing out to them, uh, it, the, whole, the whole letter, the whole book of that Bible, um, that, that whole book of the Bible is talking about a bunch of issues in the Corinthian church. And so one of these issues is that there's a man committing incest in the church. Now, I don't think he's actually sleeping with his biological mother. It identifies her as his father's wife. So I'm thinking that means it's probably like a stepmom. It doesn't just say his mom. So I'm thinking this is like a stepmom. And if this is going on, perhaps like his dad has died and he's now having an inappropriate relationship with his stepmom. So they're not biologically related, but it's still, it's still mega gross. It's still sexual immorality, according to the Bible. And by the way, how did they know it was wrong? Well, because the, the book of Leviticus tells us in Leviticus 18.8, it says, do not have sexual relations with your father's wife. That would dishonor your father. I'm just pointing that out because uh, to some people, if you follow Leviticus, they would say you're going overboard on biblical morality. That Leviticus is just outdated and too strict for modern Christians. That being a Leviticus Christian is judgmental. I'm just going to point out that Paul, right here in the New Testament, is telling the Corinthian church that they ought to be following Leviticus. Well, Leviticus chapter 18 anyway. I know there's some aspects of Leviticus that don't apply anymore, but the sexual standards still do. So I think I mentioned that also on last week's program. Um, read Leviticus 18. It gives you all the, the specific, <laughs> the nitty gritty <laughs> guidelines on the sexual morality that the Bible still expects us to follow even today as evident here in 1 Corinthians 5. Let's go on to verse 2. Paul says, And you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? So the Corinthian church was very proud. Some translations say puffed up. Probably proud because of their tolerance. They're, they're like, well, We accept everyone here at Corinthian Assembly of God. Come as you are. Stay as you are. And by the way, I'm just nothing against the Assemblies of God. I am an Assembly of God pastor. Um, in fact, if I get time, I have a really good story about them doing church discipline and, um, and it carried out in a good way, if I get time for that. Um, <laughs> my point is, I think the church in Corinth was, they, you know, surprisingly, they were actually proud of someone in a sexual sin. And that seems unfathomable. Uh, but if I wanted to take time, I, I, you know, I could certainly find some modern churches doing that today. Perhaps not with incest. That's not really, that's not in right now. But uh, there's other sins. I could probably find churches that would be proud of those sins today. Even sexual ones. And what do you do when someone is in an unrepentant sin? Well, Paul says you should put them out of fellowship. And I take putting them out of fellowship to mean that you don't socialize with them inside or outside of church. You know, unless, unless it's for the purpose of drawing them back into the church family. But other than that, I take putting them out of fellowship to mean no more socializing, even outside of church. Um, maybe a little bit like the what what is called the old-fashioned concept of shunning. You know, perhaps it means something basically like that. 
Some take the idea of putting them out of fellowship to mean that you just take them off the church membership roster so that they can no longer vote at the church. Now, I, I guess I'd say that's part of it, but um, that's not an idea that's explicitly laid out in Scripture. You know, I think it means that until this person repents, they can't attend church anymore. And, and that basically the church members should essentially shun the person, um, again, unless they're meeting with the person, to specifically bring them back into the fold. And, and by shun, I just mean that they don't, they don't hang out with this person in a recreational way. You know, if that person is going to call themselves a Christian and live in sin and refuse to stop, that you don't hang out with that person in a recreational way. Now, listen, I know sometimes you might have a personal family member. Uh, maybe you're even married to someone who's, who's living in a sin, and the church decides that they must um, essentially shun the person to follow 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, I'm not saying that if it's your personal family member that you should shun them. I think you know we could find different principles that apply to our family. I'm saying more like, say you know a guy in your church named Greg that you're not related to, and, and Greg is cheating on his wife, and he's been called out on it, and he won't stop. And, and basically, in that kind of situation, the church should ask him to stop attending until he repents. And you shouldn't have lunch plans with Greg next Tuesday, because the verse says, put out of your fellowship. And that seems pretty plain to me. Now, listen, some would say that kicking a Christian out of church is judgmental and not Christ-like. Well, let's read verse 3. Paul says, For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Whoa, but, but I thought judge not. Well, listen, if judge not was the only verse in the Bible about judging, then I would agree that we shouldn't judge anyone. But the judge not verse was not telling us not to judge. It was telling us how to judge. Paul judged, Jesus judged, and he tells you to judge too with righteous judgment. So I divide 1 Corinthians 5 into three parts, and they're all about church discipline and judgment. So part one is verses one through three, part two is verses four through eight, and part three is verses nine through 11. And here's how I break those up. Part one is about church discipline, what to do. Part two is why you do it. And then part three tells us when to do it. So I kind of covered church discipline there, like what to do, what it, what it is. It's putting someone out of fellowship. Let's talk about part two here, why you do it, verses four through eight. Why do you do church discipline? Well, there's two reasons given in these verses. Uh, one, it's best for the Christian who is being kicked out. And two, it's what's best for the church. So starting here in verse four, Paul said, when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Paul says, kick him out and let him get along with the world for a while. And it sounds cruel, but for this person, listen, there is nothing more important than that they make it to heaven. And if someone is in an unrepentant sin and you just let them continue without doing anything to help them overcome this major sin in their life, you aren't getting them any closer to heaven. The best thing that you can do for their soul is to hang them out to dry for a little while. This is not a cruelty. Um, you know, you do this with tears in your eyes because you care. You do church discipline because it's best for them. And the other reason why you do it is because that's what's best for the church. Uh, it, it, continuing in verse 6, Paul says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. Tolerating a sin in your church will cause it to spread. Other people are going to think, Oh, well, there's no consequences for doing X, so I'm going to try to get away with X also. I mean, it's, especially if you have a leader in your church who's committed some kind of sin that other people hear about and they see him essentially get a slap on the wrist over it, they think, oh, well, well, I can just do that too. No, nip it in the bud. 
if you want to see that same sin repeat over and over in your church, well, go ahead and ignore it. But if you want to see it never happen again, nip it in the bud the first time you see it come up. Very simple principle right there. It's just hard to do, but it's a simple principle. And and finally, uh, in these verses in this chapter, they tell us when to do church discipline. Okay, how do you know something is bad enough that it actually requires church discipline as a corrective measure? And um, there, there's a list of situations given here in verses 9, 10, and 11. And I'm not I'm not saying that these are the only situations actually, but they give us kind of a general idea. There might be other things that it could even lead to church discipline, but here's some general situations where it could come up uh, in in verses 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. <laughs> so Paul is saying here, you know, he's explaining when you apply these principles. And this chapter is in regard to how you discipline a Christian. So he he says this doesn't count for just like all the people you meet out in the world and society. He says, if you if you reject fellowship with all unrepentant sinners, you might as well go live in a cave because there's just no way to function in this world that way. You would have to build a rocket ship to Mars to get away from sinners. So no, this isn't a rule about how we operate in the world, like at our jobs, at our schools, at our at our Walmarts. This is a rule about how Christians are to operate within the church. So Paul says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. So here is when you don't associate with a Christian. When it's someone who is sexually immoral, greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, a drunkard, a swindler, and considers themselves a believer. Okay? When they are one of those things and they consider themselves a believer. Sexual immorality is just the category for all the sexual sins. Okay? And remember what I said before. Think categorically. In 2021, you probably won't find any churches or people who are cool with incest. All right, that's still kind of rare in our society. As messed up as our society is, in America at least, you're not going to find many who are cool with that. (laughs) Give us a couple more years and maybe we'll be there. But right now, incest is not popular. But, 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 But what if you have a boyfriend and girlfriend who are living together? And yet coming on Sundays to church as as if they're members of the church and that there's just nothing wrong with how they're living. Well, listen, um, I mean, unless they're like brand new Christians, okay, if they've been Christians for at least six months or so a year, they should know better than that. You know, if they're new Christians, I think you do need to give them the grace and patience of some transition time so they can learn how to live as followers of Christ. But if they are established churchgoers and they know better and they're doing that anyway, someone in the church, you know, probably leadership needs to set up a meeting with them. Okay. Give them a chance to admit they're wrong. Maybe give them a little bit of time to think it over. Give them a week or two, give them options. All right. That if they, you know, they could get married or they could get separate apartments or break up whatever it takes, but that the sin has to end. Okay. Okay. So give them some options, give them a little bit of time to think about it. But then after that, if they are refusing to change their ways, the Bible says the best thing you can do for them and for your church and for your church is to put them out of fellowship. And some people are going to call that judging them. And maybe it is. But it's the judgment that Paul and God has committed to the church. So you could call it judging. And again, Perhaps it is. But but you know what? The way I look at it, I'm not the judge. But there is a judge. His name is God. And someday I have to meet the judge. And what if the judge says to me, Oh, I wish you had cut that guy off in your life so that he could have repented. But instead, they never took their sin seriously. Man, I would hate to hear those words from God. And I'll mention this too. As a youth pastor, I have enacted church discipline 
multiple times. And, and sometimes the person comes back and sometimes they don't. But as the youth pastor, it was my responsibility to protect the flock. And, and I try to pastor without regrets. So if I had let someone stay in the church who then caused harm to the remaining members of the group, I would have had major regrets. Okay, and, and I'll give a few examples. I'm going to do this without naming names. Not that, not that you'd even know the people I'm talking about anyway, but I'm just going to try to be discreet right here. Um, and give some examples. I once had a girl in our youth group who had this habit of spreading rumors. And she caused a lot of problems in our group in other ways too, um, besides just that. She was very overdramatic. She once had me call 911 during one of our services because she was like convinced that she had seen a, a church kid get kidnapped. And it turned out, you know, no, the kid was just like getting picked up early. But I'm just saying this girl, she caused a lot of drama. And one of the ways she did that was by spreading rumors. And she began spreading a rumor that um, one of the leaders in the church was having an affair. So I told her, listen, if you have evidence that this is true, you need to turn it over and, and we'll look into it. And until the matter is resolved, don't tell anyone else this rumor. You know, give the church leadership a chance to look into this. So she gave us the source and it was someone else who used to attend the church. And then we went and talked to this person this person denied that it was true, went and talked to the church leader about it. He denied that it was true. So we had no evidence by which to believe this rumor had any factual basis. We didn't have any like literal evidence as to whether it was true. However, in the meantime, this girl continued to spread the rumor, even after I warned her to stop a second time. And then I had to warn her a third time. And even then she did it yet again. I'm starting to get phone calls from people all over claiming that this church leader is involved in an extramarital affair and they're all claiming that their source is this same girl. <laughs> so after after the fourth time I had caught this girl spreading the rumor, and again, after I had already warned her three times to stop, I didn't give her a fourth warning. I told her she had to go. And I have no regrets about doing that. My, my only regret is that I gave her so many chances, to be honest. Um, and I felt bad for the girl, and I, honestly, I still do. I feel, and I felt bad for myself that I had to send someone away because as a youth pastor, I was trying to build a youth group, not kill it. Um, but frankly, frankly, I was more concerned for the group of teenagers as a whole that she was damaging because she was going to the teenagers and telling them this rumor. Um, so I was more concerned for that. I was concerned for the reputation of that leader that she was destroying. And honestly, I truly do wish I had just kicked her out after the third offense rather than giving her another chance, because this is actually what the Bible tells us to do. In Titus 3.10, uh, Paul said there, As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once, and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So that verse actually says, give someone two warnings. And that means the third time they've messed up. If they've been given two warnings, they got to go. Now, perhaps you could say when it comes to teenagers, you can give them an additional chance that, you know, that might be reasonable to say because teenagers are a bit younger, ha have a little bit less self-control, but, you know, I don't know. But frankly, you got to draw the line somewhere. So if you find yourself having a difficulty like this with someone, you need to sit them down and be as clear as possible in communicating where they're messing up, which means don't use euphemisms. Don't say anything that could be misunderstood. Don't joke around. Be clear and to the point and spell out the consequences if this person crosses the line again and then follow through on your warnings. So after kicking this girl out, <laughs> you know, I got an angry message from an angry mother and she's like, what kind of church tells someone they can't attend there anymore? You know, she wanted to know what kind of church would kick a teenager out of church. And uh, she said some more than that too, but... <laughs> You know, just that question she asked, that's a good question. What kind of church tells someone that they can't attend anymore? Do you want me to answer that for you here? It's called a church that follows the Bible. A church that's doing what Jesus said in Revelation. A church that's doing what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. So um, if, you, if, you have a, if you have a 21st century church, Okay, which means you're going to have some sinful people in your church because everyone in the world is a sinner. If your church is a healthy church, it is doing church discipline. 
Because if you have, you know, in modern times, there are going to be people in your church who are sinning. And that doesn't always mean you're always kicking people out, but you're at least talking to people about if they have a public known sin going on in their life and people are just ignoring it, the church leadership should be talking to that person at some point, addressing this with them, giving them an option. Church discipline doesn't necessarily mean you're always going to kick them out. Hopefully, they repent, they stop the action, and it doesn't spread anymore in your church beyond that. A healthy church follows church discipline. A church that's following the Bible is going to address these issues. There was another time that I had to dismiss someone from our group um, because, so there was this young man, he had grown up in our youth group. He, he you know, he was like 18 or so, 19 maybe. He wanted to be in a helper role. Uh, he wanted to help run the sound booth in our youth services. <laughs> and that was a position that I badly needed someone in because when there's not someone there to do the sound booth, you know, I have to preach the youth service and then I run back to the sound booth to, to do the worship slides during the music. And then I have to run back there to start my PowerPoint and videos and all that stuff. So it's very helpful to have someone in the sound booth for you um, to help the, the, the service go smoother. And there was this kid, probably 18 or 19, he wanted to help me with that. And I was glad to have him. But after he'd been doing that just, you know, a month or two, he asks to talk with me after church. And he tells me that um, he had got a new girlfriend and that they were sleeping together. And he knew that it went against the teachings of our church. But he wanted to be honest with me about it. So in the realm of judging, okay, how should we handle a situation like that? Well, I'll tell you this. I was, I was very gentle in my demeanor with this boy because he was being 100% open and honest with me. Uh, he was not trying to hide his actions. He was not trying to pretend to be someone he was not. I mean, he volunteered all this information to me. So I, I, you know, I greatly respected his integrity for that. I didn't like jump down his throat. I didn't start yelling at him. Um, however, I was also honest with him. You know, I told him, well, you are living in sin. I encouraged him to stop. I encouraged him to repent. You know, I told him God would forgive him. Um, and that he, you know, I was glad he acknowledged that what he was doing was wrong. But part of repenting means that you stop doing the sin that you're repenting of. So he took all that very well. And, and frankly, even to this day, we have a good relationship. You know, he, occasionally he drives by and we'll stop and talk for a little bit when he's driving by the church. So we still have a good relationship, but not a church relationship. Because I told him, you know, it's not appropriate for you to be in a volunteer role in our youth services if you're not living a godly life outside of the services. And I said he was welcome to continue as a helper if he repented. But I told him until he did, I couldn't use him as a volunteer anymore. So I told him, you know, take a little bit of time. You can think that over. And sadly, he didn't come back to our services. Um, and is that is that judging to you? You know, and I'm again, I'm, I'm fine with saying it is. I think it's an entirely appropriate manner of judging according to the Bible. And I don't think I ever even finished 1 Corinthians 5. But let me just read the last two verses and notice the word judge in these verses. 1 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13, it says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. God has assigned the role of judge to the church. When someone is living in unrepentant sin, your church is commanded to keep itself pure. Now, you might be listening to that, and what, like that story I just told you, and you're thinking, well, but he was just a soundboard volunteer. Why would you have such high standards for a soundboard volunteer? It's not like he was even a Sunday school leader or someone on stage. Well, I just want to point out a couple things about that. Um, for one thing, 1 Corinthians 5 does not just apply to leaders. It actually applies to all members of your church. But second, I just want to say this too on the matter of volunteer service. I just want to point out a passage from Acts 6. This is when um, Acts 6, it's where the church leaders, the pastors, they were getting overwhelmed with all their church duties. And they didn't have time to pray and study the Bible on top of all the administrative responsibilities and the other daily tasks. So I'm going to read some verses here from Acts 6. And then I, then I want to point something out. It said, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. 
because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So you probably recognize this chapter. It's a well-known one in the book of Acts. What job did the church leaders need help with? It was waiting tables, being a waiter, serving people food. And what was the requirement to serve food in the church? They said, you must have a good reputation. Be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. To what? To serve tables. (laughs) Those are some high standards for a job, um, you know, that most people consider a pretty small, ordinary, non-spiritual task. It's, you know, it's a minimum wage job out in the world. But yet you could not do that for your church unless you had a good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. It shows me that the, that the early church had a low tolerance for sin in their volunteers. I mean, do any churches today have such a high bar for their volunteer workforce? If you were a Christian or church member in the early church, and you were not living a holy life, you couldn't even wait tables. Something to think about right there when we let someone work in our nursery or a sound booth, or be on our praise team, what are our standards? Do we communicate a standard of holiness to our volunteers? Well, next I wanna talk about one more area where we will apply judgment, and that's when we have a personal conflict with another Christian. So, in Matthew 18, Jesus gives some instructions for when you have a conflict with another Christian. He gives a specific and detailed process for dealing with that. A logical process. A pretty unambiguous process. In one of the most famous books of the Bible. And yet, I could probably count on one hand the number of times I've seen this followed. (laughs) So, let me read it to you. Matthew 18 verses 15 through 17. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector." So Jesus says that when you're having an issue with another Christian, that there's a few steps you jump through, okay? One of them, uh, a few steps, I think I got my metaphor mixed up there. A few hoops you jump through or a few steps you take. So number one, you go talk to them. And if that doesn't resolve it, you get a few other fellow Christians to discuss it amongst yourselves. And then if that doesn't work at resolving the issue, you might need to take it before the church as a whole. And if then that you and your friends and the whole church agrees that this one person is in the wrong, but he won't repent, then he must be cast out of the church. Now, I've rarely seen something like this take place where it gets up to the point that something um, that something must go before the whole church. You know, that's not that's not the point at which I see this rule being broken. I usually see it broken at the first step. You know, when someone sins against us, our first instinct is usually not to go to that person and tell them about it. Our first instinct is to go and tell a third party about it, and then maybe a fourth party, and a fifth, and everybody else in the hair salon. But they only hear my side, so they all agree with me, but that's okay because I'm right anyway, right? (laughs) And and if we at least have the self-control not to go until half the town when someone wrongs us, we don't always still go and talk to the person who did us wrong. We sometimes try to bury the emotions or we hold a grudge. And these are not the things that Jesus tells us to do. He tells us to try to resolve the matter privately first. I was watching Judge Judy the other night 
And uh, let me tell you something. You can learn a lot of life lessons while watching Judge Judy. So um, so technically, actually what I was watching was her new show on Amazon. I think it's called Judy Justice. Um, does that sound right? Judy Justice. Uh, anyway, there's these two girls arguing on there because um, one of them owed the other one $80. And she didn't pay her $80 debt. Instead, they had some hard feelings between each other. And so they were going around town bad-mouthing each other. And like one reported the other to the Better Business Bureau. The other is bad-mouthing the first to a mutual friend. And uh, they both end up suing each other for defamation of character. And the way it actually all worked out, the one who started it, okay, the one who started this whole thing by not paying the $80 debt, she ends up having to pay out $2,080. I'm kind of watching, I'm just kind of shocked at how things spun out of control for her. That she could have just resolved the whole thing by paying her original debt when it was small. Okay, $80. And now she's been dragged into court and Judge Judy is yelling at her on national TV. And she has to end up paying over $2,000 for something that could have just cost $80. And that that is just so indicative of how a situation that's like a little cherry bomb between two people, it can explode into a nuclear explosion if you don't take care of it when it's small. So Jesus wants us to resolve a matter when it's small. And look, you know, if it's something really petty that you could just get over it within like a day, perhaps you don't need to bring it up every time. But if it is something bigger, talk to the person one-on-one. And from there, you're either going to resolve it um, or maybe agree to disagree but listen, if this is something that like you just need to have resolved, okay, get someone else to help mediate the situation, maybe two people. And listen, when you when you do that, don't just pick two of your friends who are just going to take your side because they're your friends. Don't do that. You know, be fair. Be f- Find someone who knows both of you, someone who can be objective and be honest, help you work all this out. All right. If you want wise counsel, maybe find your pastor or a deacon. If you want to get yelled at, go on Judge Judy. But listen, if you can't find a resolution from like three or four of the three or four of you working together on it, if you can't get a resolution that way, and if this is like really an issue significant enough that you don't feel that you can continue to worship alongside this person at church until it's taken care of, then you might need to have a church meeting about it. You know, if it's really that significant of an issue. And if the church as a whole says this person was wrong, then that person has two options. They either need to repent or they need to leave. But listen, something like that, that could be very distressful for a church. So don't do it unless it's significant enough, okay? Like if someone rips you off $20, you know, that's bad. I don't know that I would put the church through this whole ordeal over $20, all right? Maybe just between you and that person, don't lend them any more money. But... If someone rips you off hundreds or thousands of dollars, well, that's something that you should probably seek some church oversight on. Because if they'll do that to you, they'll probably try to take advantage of someone else too. And by the way, Paul is clear that it is before the church body that you should try to bring a fellow Christian to account in that kind of thing. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, okay, this is this is the chapter after those verses that we were reading before. He kind of goes into some of this church discipline stuff a little bit further. I'm not going to read all the verses from that chapter. I'm just picking a few here and there. Paul said, If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers. But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? So judging within a church is a command. It's something that God has committed to the assembly of believers. So he says, don't even take your matter before human courts. Okay, if it's a fellow Christian, don't go on Judge Judy. Um, (laughs) uh, listen, if there's one thing that ties together all of my goals with this lesson today, 
And the lesson that we started last week, it's this. The people who want to try to live by this judge not philosophy, they would have to throw out so much of the Bible in order to do that. When Jesus said judge not, again, he was not telling us not to judge. He was telling us how to judge. Uh, Back to the Matthew 18 thing. Um, I just want to tell a quick story from that. As a younger person at a church I used to attend, we had this issue come up that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 18. There was a man in our church who would not stop making sexual advances toward this uh, single woman in the church. And this man was himself already married. So it started off, he had been making some suggestive comments to her. And then one time they were in a room together alone. No one else happened to be in the room at that time. And and this man made a move and the single woman was appalled. And she had already asked him to stop interacting with her. Um, So at first she was just trying to keep it private just between the two of them, you know, kind of like Jesus said, but, uh, but he wouldn't stop. So after this incident, she went to a few other church people to mediate the situation. And they all agreed that this married man should stop hitting on the single mom. And he said that he would. And he apologized. All right? And he was told, don't have any further contact with her. Just leave her alone. And yet, a week or two later, he was calling her again and he was asking for a ride to the airport. (laughs) So the church had already made it abundantly clear to him that he was to leave this single, single woman alone. And he would just not. So... He was told he was no longer allowed at the church. You know, he was not only attempting to cheat on his wife, he was harassing this, like this young single woman who was, by the way, that was like less than half his age. So, um, of course, by the time it got to this point, (laughs) word had gotten out around to the whole church about the situation. So the church had to address this issue publicly and have a church meeting about the situation. And in doing so, Uh, I remember that day, the pastor took out his Bible. He read Matthew 18. He explained it. He explained the situation that the church was dealing with and why it had gotten to a point that they they had to make a public spectacle of it, really, to address it. And that's one of my, um, you know, the situation was awful, what this guy was doing. I especially felt bad for his wife. And um, it was awful what he was doing and what he was putting the church through by acting this way. But yet I'm really proud that the church itself was willing to deal with this issue, not try to sweep it under the rug. They were willing to talk about it and enact what Jesus said about church discipline. Enact what Jesus said in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 still applies today, and it applies well. You know, even if people rarely follow it, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just sure thankful that my church, that, that I was attending at that time, that it did. Jesus said in Matthew 18, If you cast someone out, let him be to you as a Gentile or tax collector. Okay? Now, by the way, that doesn't mean you have to treat the person with scorn. <laughs> because the Bible doesn't tell us to treat Gentiles with scorn. You know, or non-Christians, basically. Non-believers. We're still kind to them. You know, you, you can still be friends in a sense. Even with someone who's been cast out of your church, I'm, you know, you can, in a sense, you can be kind to them. Um, like that boy that I told you about earlier, who decided that he would rather have an immoral relationship with his girlfriend rather than a relationship with the church. You know, I still talk to him occasionally. We get along fine. We both know where each other stands. And I'm sad that he chose sin over God. But, you know, I can't control what he does. Uh, what, what I can control, however... What God has told me to control is the standards for who volunteers at my church. So if you want to have a healthy church, listen to the book of Revelation and Matthew and 1 Corinthians and Titus. Judge. Hold people to account. If someone is divisive or living immorally or teaching false doctrine, they must correct their actions or be removed from the congregation. If they stay, they're going to be a cancer. And it can take courage, okay? It can take courage to do this stuff. But but modern American Christianity needs to get over this idea that every time someone leaves a church, that it's a problem with the church. You know, that the church did something wrong. Because sometimes it's the person who's in the wrong. Sometimes the church is just being obedient. 
And listen, every pastor, of course, always feels pressure to see their church grow. Pastors never want to have fewer people at church. They don't want to kick people out, okay? I like having all the parts of my body, but if one part of my body has cancer, the surgeon might have to remove that part. <laughs> you know, I don't want someone to cut in and rip something out of my body, but it might become necessary in order to survive. Sometimes someone gets an infection in one part of their body and they literally, they have to like amputate part of it or else the infection will spread throughout the whole body and kill it. And the exact same is true for the body of Christ. It's not that pastors want to lose any part of their body, but it can become necessary to keep the body alive. So when I hear statements from people who left a church and they say stuff like, oh, they just want me to fail. They wouldn't give me a chance. You know, that honestly, it tells me more about you than about the church <laughs> because I've never heard of a church that wants fewer members, you know, just for the sake of it. <laughs> so let's get over this victim mentality in our culture that says every time a church member doesn't get along in the church, that it's the church's fault. In fact, the problem I often see in churches is that many times they don't kick people out enough or they don't have high enough standards for volunteers. So, all right, I think I've covered this issue enough for today. Um, if there's one more area that I'd kind of like to talk about in regards to judging, that would be Romans 14. But I honestly, I feel like that chapter really deserves its own lesson. So maybe we'll try to cover that down the line. Uh, it also has a lot to say about judging too, but I think I've said enough for today. So let's do a recap of our main points and then I'll let you go for today. So we're going to recap our main ideas from today and put it all together in just a moment. First, let me ask, do you like fake news? Well, if not, you definitely do not want to check out my other podcast. It's called Fake News, a fiery but mostly peaceful podcast. And on that weekly show, we look at the past week of news stories through a meta narrative of how the media covered those stories. And it's a lot of fun. It's more focused on current events. So if you don't like fake news, you definitely don't want to come listen to it. But if you like laughing at fake news, come join the fun with new episodes of that one each Friday. And also, if you have a question on this lesson or on any of our podcasts that we've done so far, leave a comment or shoot us an email, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to take questions or recommendations on subjects that you think I should tackle in the future. Or if you want to say something friendly or send hate mail, I'll take it all, crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. And next time on this podcast, we'll finally be in Ezekiel chapter 2. And that's part of our study series through Ezekiel. And um, I'll probably, I got a little bit off. I wanted to do even-numbered episodes. I wanted to talk about a random topic and odd-numbered episodes. We're going to be talking about Ezekiel. But because of how the lesson that I wanted to do last time, it just kind of spilled over into this week. What I'll probably do is now I'll spend two weeks, uh, the next two episodes, in the book of Ezekiel. And so we'll work on that for a bit and get caught back up and get back in in the routine I really wanted to establish. So um, that's what we're looking at for the next couple of weeks. We'll be back in the book of Ezekiel, taking that just a little bit at a time, seeing what God has to say to us through that major prophet. Um, now to recap today. Let's recap today before we go. We are not commanded to refrain from judging. We are told how to judge. And so just to bring in a little bit again from last week, the first thing you should do before judging is just to stop Take an inventory of your own life. Okay, ask yourself, do, do I ever do this action? Have I ever done this? Do I do anything in the same category as this? If so, make sure you've cleaned up your own life before trying to clean up someone else's. Deal with others in a gentle and humble way, not a haughty, know-it-all way. And trust me, if you point out someone's flaw, <laughs> if you even have 10% that same problem in your own life, and you don't acknowledge that, they won't listen to anything that you have to say. So always remember that before you even start with um, going down the road of judgment. And remember also, we judge Christians and non-Christians in different ways, okay? Insiders and outsiders. If someone doesn't even claim to be a Christian, 
you don't really have any business judging them or doing anything against them. Um, I mean, unless they're breaking the law or doing something to hurt you, that's a different story. But I'm just kind of speaking more of uh, in our in our minds. We don't really have business judging the outsiders. The Bible says it's God's job to judge them. And again, I'm speaking strictly in the moral sense, okay? If they break the law, it's appropriate to let the authorities handle that. I'm just saying we don't need to dwell on the sins of unbelievers in our thought life. However, we actually are supposed to be a little bit more preoccupied with the sins within the church, within the people who worship alongside of us and claim to be Christians. Now, we can't know someone's heart, okay? We can't, like, know whether someone is truly saved. That's ultimately between each person and God. However, if someone claims to be a Christian and they are a churchgoer, there are certain expectations that come along with that. There are moral standards. And I would say those especially apply if someone is in some kind of volunteer role at your church. Because anyone who works for the church is a representative of your church, even in a volunteer sense. Especially in a volunteer sense. I Really, everyone who goes to your church represents your church. But especially those who are given any kind of volunteer role or authority. So... Some of the reasons that Paul gave us to apply church discipline, uh, some of those reasons were unrepentant sexual immorality or greed or idolatry or slandering others or being a drunkard or just a generally dishonest person. And um, unrepentant is a key word there because this applies when someone has been called out on their sin and they won't stop it. And all of that is covered in 1 Corinthians 5. Also, if you check out Matthew 18, Jesus gives a process for handling the situation when you have a personal conflict with another Christian. So listen, if another Christian makes you mad, don't just start calling up your friends and complaining about them, okay? Flip right over to Matthew 18 and do what Jesus said. And if you have to remove someone from your church fellowship because of an unrepentant sin, the Bible says do not hang out with them inside or outside of church, okay? This is to compel them to repent, and to desire to be back in the church family. Now, if you want to keep being friends and just ignore their sin, what's going to happen is they're probably going to ignore it too, and that would be disastrous for them, spiritually speaking. And it'd be disastrous for your church, because your church, once it accepts that sin, you'll see it repeatedly play out in the lives of other members of the congregation. Now listen, if you can keep all of that straight, (laughs) congratulations. If you can keep all that straight, congratulations. You have a more mature grasp of Jesus' commands on judging than probably 95% of the population. Because like I said before, most people want to say, judge not, and just leave it at that. But that's not what God wants. And it's not even actually possible. If we want to obey Jesus correctly, we can't just pick two words he said on a subject and forget about everything else. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you that you can learn a lot of life lessons from being yelled at by Judge Judy.